Namaste everyone. Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host Kushal Mehra. All right, today's podcast is actually inspired by an essay written by Shreema Talukdar on fourth of November. Uh, uh, it was titled "Xi Jinping is no Mao Zedong, but like the great helmsman, there's none stopping China's great leap 2.0." I absolutely love this essay, and I reached out to Shreema that I want to talk about it. Plus, we also had the G20 summit, and a lot of interesting things that also happen in in light of the G20 summit. So I'm happy that Shreema agreed. So Shreema, welcome. Uh, Kushal, thanks for having me back. Great, great to be back here. All right, so let's break down this. So I, I know I'm, uh, and this is not me trying to be condescending to my viewers or anything, but there are a lot of eighteen-year-olds, seventeen-year-olds, sixteen-year-olds who listen to the podcast too now. So maybe they actually don't know what the Great Leap itself is. So maybe we'll start from there. A little bit of history, Shreemoy, and can you tell, for the sake of the youngsters, what the Great Leap Forward it was in a very summarized way? What Mao and the Great uh, Great Leap Forward did uh, the, did to China, and then we can pick up on the essay itself. Okay, so uh, you know, before I actually start uh, talking about that, uh, I, there is something that I thought that I would uh, uh, talk about before this uh, this entire thing starts, uh, because this is something which is very close to my heart, and it is probably one of the things which led me to write this essay. Uh, I will obviously take your question and I'll answer that. Uh, but before that, I would like to just take a little bit of time in in in, in discussing Please this, do. and then I'll kick off. Please yeah. do. So, Please do. Uh, just a few uh, weeks back, uh, a rumor started uh, online uh, that uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping has been uh, arrested in a in a in a, in a coup, and uh, he is apparently he is um, closeted in his palace, and apparently the army has taken over. We, by way of uh, information, it was basically a couple of guys, uh, journalists associated with a sect called Falun Gong. Uh, they had started this uh, this this rumor by posting a couple of tweets and an unnamed video clip, which had nothing to show except just a just a small uh, just just a convoy moving towards one from one place to another. And then it it triggered such a tsunami of misinformation in India, and everybody started believing it in such a way. That it, it, I was flabbergasted, and 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 that by mean everybody. I meant a lot of really uh, handles whom I respect a lot, who, uh, who 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 generally they they are they they are knowledgeable in what they say. But even they were discussing that, and and or they and they wanted to believe that that is happening. So the reason I want to discuss this upfront is that there is a lack in India of knowledge about China and how the Chinese system operates. We. We live in a state of uh, blankness, and we cannot afford to do that because China is India's biggest challenge. It is our it it, it is it is the biggest challenge, and, and as time progresses and as India grows and so does China, it will this this challenge will become even greater, not lesser. So it is imperative for Indians to understand how the Chinese system works, how it develops, what it does, and what it does not. And and the reason I'm you know, I I wanted to start with this is that I want everybody to understand that the Chinese system is not unstable. The Chinese system is not a system which is given to the kind of drama that we see in Pakistan, right? So do not equate both. Uh, Xi Jinping is not going to be arrested in a coup. Very unlikely that even if that happens, it will happen by a military coup because in China the military belongs to the party, not to the Chinese state. So they owe their allegiance to the Chinese party, the Chinese Communist Party. So if ever there is a coup, 
and I'm not saying that there will never be, that coup is likely to happen within the CPC, within the precincts of the party. It will never be a military coup against uh, you know, uh, Xi Jinping. So I just wanted to put that out of the way. Sure. About the Great Leap, sure. yeah. Yeah, about the Great Leap, uh, well, uh, look, Kushal, it's, 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 a, it's a cultural revolution. Uh, he wanted uh, to sort of, uh, Mao wanted to, to sort of modernize China in a matter of a decade. And he wanted to bring in sweeping changes which are not possible without making the structural changes that are needed. And, and in course of doing that, Mao caused famine in China and, and due to his pig-headedness. And, and one of the reasons why that happened is that there, during Mao Zedong's rule, there were no checks and balances on his power. So he could do pretty much whatever he liked. So due to his pig-headedness, his poor understanding of how these things work, there was a there's a very bad famine in China and a lot of people. And I, when I say a lot of people, I mean people in millions. People died in millions. And, and most of the people who wanted to uh, uh, sort of uh, caution Mao against taking these steps. They were summarily purged, and among which was Xi Jinping's father. He was also purged, and Xi Jinping was sent. He, you know, remember Xi Jinping at one of uh, one point of time, Xi Jinping's father used to be uh, a, uh, used to belong to the coterie of the power sector, power center in which 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 was around Mao. So Xi Jinping is 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 a is is a princeling. A princeling is someone whose father also comes from a position of power. But after Xi Jinping's father was purged, she was sent to a remote location in a, in a village where he had to basically um, uh, go through a hand-by-mouth existence. He had to, you know, do agriculture. He had to mingle with the villagers there. All his, all the, all, all, all the, the, the way that he was, up, he, was, he was brought up by his parents and the way those years he spent in the wilderness, almost in the rural areas, was vastly different. And I think that also contributed a lot to who Xi Jinping is today. <laughs> yeah, it's very interesting uh, that you brought the Pakistan analogy and I'm going to be, you know, covering Pakistan with Dr. Mohammad Taki soon and uh, posting it on the podcast too. And uh, the, the irony is that uh, right now what's <laughs> happening in Pakistan and if we look at vis-a-vis the 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 inkalab of Imran Khan, uh, you know, if we were to call it, and how China and Chinese political structure is uh, existing. And and by the way, in your essay, you do talk about how the Chinese political structure uh, functions and how Chinese politics functions. So maybe maybe we can focus on that. Like, how do you climb up in the ranks of, say, the CPC? or uh, you know communist party of china like how do we do how does one do that how how does one press the levers here press the levers there because i'll tell you i was listening to this great courses the history of china from the start to the current day it's a fantastic course and and what i've understood is like they have these advisors and 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 like the old china the king would always make the advisor the patsy right are so how does the modern Chinese political structure uh, function? If you were, if, if we could maybe explain that, like how does one do the dirty politics there? So uh, in China, there are actually more than one political party in China. There are at least, I think, seven or eight political parties. But obviously, uh, Chinese Communist Party is the only one that counts. So let's say if you are uh, uh, an ambitious person, if you want to be, uh, if you want to join politics, 
then the only avenue the only realistic avenue for you open for you is to join the the communist party and it is it is the i think it is uh, probably one of the biggest political parties in the world if not the biggest i think bjp also uh, you know it's it's uh, it's, it's a this fact is contested so i don't want to go into that but it is one of the biggest so let's say if you have, you have joined the political party the you have joined the communist party of china and you have to slowly move up through the ranks uh, you know the chinese people like to call it the, the cpc likes to call it whole process people's democracy apparently their structure is 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 like this so you have several uh, party chiefs in several provinces of china and these party chiefs in turn will have their own own cabinet of sorts so you have to move up those ranks but to make the final leap uh into into the uh to the, to the power sector where where you become a party chief of sorts uh, you will have to obviously uh be close to the clique of the current uh general secretary in this case it is xi jinping and it it is actually a a very interesting question because if you look what has happened in this uh 20th party congress is that pretty much the entire power structure of chinese communist party right from the politburo standing committee which is just a a collection of seven people and from the the politburo which is a collection of 24 people this time it usually is around 25 this time it's 24 and then there is the central uh, committee central committee consists of around 205 odd people every member in these three tiers almost every member i shouldn't say every but almost every member in these three tiers are are members of the xi jinping clique so the the shanghai clique the xi jinping clique and xi jinping has a hand in the in the election of almost each of these members so they owe their allegiance to xi they owe their loyalty to xi and and one of the things which xi has done uh, compared to hu jintao and jiang zemin before him is that he has done away with this entire business of collective leadership so for you to become uh, for you to rise up the ranks in china right now you have to either be a member of that clique or or you have to show loyalty unquestionable loyalty to uh, to xi how does this work let me give you one example li qiang uh, you know I, i i should apologize to your uh, viewers because i am not a mandarin speaker so i won't be able to give you the mandarin pronunciations of the names i can only give you the anglicized pronunciations for people among your viewers who know mandarin i apologize to them beforehand so li qiang who's who's right now the second after you know uh, if you look at the order of preference in the uh, central committee of uh, the the politburo central committee the standing committee you will find that in among these seven people she lies at the very top in the second position is li qiang who's this guy called li qiang who has been promoted to to the politburo standing committee this year li qiang used to be the boss of shanghai the party boss in shanghai now before the party congress uh, obviously a thousand and you know millions and millions of speculative articles were written and most of these articles say that li qiang this time has almost very little chance of making it to the top echelons of chinese communist party why because he messed up big time in shanghai when when analysts were writing this what were they thinking of so we saw in the entire world saw how people in shanghai were starved of food essential items people were jumping out of the windows i i'm sure you have seen those dramatic videos in certain locations in shanghai from apartment buildings high up people were jumping out of the windows in desperation yeah people were horrifying going, yeah uh, doors were sealed it was horrifying and 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 the the experiences of people from the quarantine centers people were forcibly taken and put into quarantine centers there the experiences were even more horrific 
so there was a lot of anger in shanghai and, and remember shanghai is one of the most affluent provinces in china and people who stay in shanghai shanghai they are the upper middle class people and mostly so in their wildest dreams they couldn't have believed that a day will come then they will be starved of food you know it it might be a it, it china is still a country of a, a lot of inequality and there are many poor people who china who still go without food but shanghai is certainly not among them people in shanghai are among the upper middle class people so they had to undergo that sort of trauma so it was almost a given and everyone was writing at that point of time that li qiang who was the party boss in shanghai has no hope in hell even though he was close he was very close to xi jinping even though he was considered to be a staunch xi loyalist everyone was writing and people who are seasoned china analysts even people who uh, i i distinctly remember an article in nikkei asia uh, the newspaper in japan where one of the one of the writers there was is a very seasoned guy he has been uh, covering china for a very long time even he wrote that li qiang has no chance of you know making it to the top echelons of of the of of in the of the power shake up during the party congress now what did we see we saw that li qiang li, li qiang not only did make it he is the number two person in the pbsc which basically means that in march when the new uh, uh, cabinet is sworn in he will probably become the new chinese premier instead of li keqiang he will replace li keqiang now how do you explain this one of the things which probably has happened and i am also a, I'm doing a post facto analysis here uh, must have happened is that by the dint of his loyalty that he took unpopular decisions even at the cost of making himself unpopular he was staunchly implementing the zero covid policy of xi jinping which told xi jinping that this is a man whom he can depend upon he is such a loyal person that even though he is going to take the fall he is not balking he is not deviating from the zero covid policy of his boss so that is the kind of loyalty which xi jinping believes in and that is the kind of people he is promoting so if you ask me how does one get up into the it, it, right now xi jinping is the unquestionable leader he is going to be around for a long time and and to an aspiring leader i'd say get in the good books of xi and 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 you know that that's how you'll get up there's no other way yeah but uh, his journey up has been very interesting like the videos of who was that leader man who was unceremoniously removed uh, i forgot the That's name of the that's hu jintao that's hu jintao yeah hu jintao hu jintao yeah, yeah. hu jintao is the ex ex chinese president yeah he he yeah. xi jinping he xi jinping succeeded him hu jintao yeah. was uh, uh, you know uh, when uh, deng xiaoping came into power one of the things which deng xiaoping did was the original reformer of china one of the things he did was that he installed a modicum of uh, balance in the chinese elite politics he said that from now on because deng xiaoping had seen what could have happened in mao zedong's rule what can an unlimited power in the hand of one person mean you know the the tragedy of uh, great leap great leap and the famine and the and the millions who died so deng xiaoping wanted to put in place a system where there would be a fair amount of collective leadership so what would mm. be a collective leadership the collective leadership would be something like this obviously as general secretary and the president of the china, of, of of china that person will be the top but then in the extended politburo standing committee which is a coterie of another seven people and and the politburo just below it which is another 25 odd people there will be people belonging to rival cliques as well right now Uh, the uh, the ultimate authority will rest with the chinese president or the general secretary but the rival cliques will 
will some sort of provide some sort of a check or a balance on the power of that individual. This is the kind of system which he had installed. And when Deng Xiaoping went away, there was also uh, he also uh, tried started the system that this was unofficial, by the way. Huh? This was not written in the party constitution that a president can only serve two terms and after that he will be replaced. But it was a norm. It was a normative tradition which Deng Xiaoping started. So after Deng Xiaoping, we saw Jiang Zemin. Jiang Zemin served for two terms. And after Jiang Zemin came Hu Jintao. Or once again, Hu served for two terms. And after the second term of Hu Jintao ended, Xi Jinping was inducted into the Chinese General Secretary and he became the Chinese President. Now, one of the things which he has done, uh, Xi has done, is that he has completely dismantled this uh, this this entire system of uh, you know um, that that a president can serve only two terms, and he has also done away with the power sharing arrangement. That has taken Xi a long time, mind you, because uh, many people think that Xi started this the moment he succeeded uh, as uh, the moment he became Chinese president in 2012. That is wrong. It has taken Xi ten years. To reach this position in in the first five-year term and in the second five-year term he still had to tolerate a lot of people from rival cliques people like Li Keqiang who's right who's right now the Chinese premier remember he belongs to the communist youth league faction the communist youth league faction is the rival faction to the faction which Xi Jinping comes from but the fact that Li Keqiang was his premier tells you that she did not have absolute control so far, which he has finally managed to do this time after 10 long years. He's patiently moved all the chess pieces and he's finally arrived at a situation where he can call the shots in such a way that all the rival factions will be obliterated and only people whom he decides, who he thinks are his staunch loyalists, will be inducted into power. So these are the basic structural changes that he has affected, which we saw this manifestation during the party congress. Basically, they're typical politicians. <laughs> Long story short, they're typical politicians. But, you know, the this is very... Like, look, neither you know nor I know what's going to happen in the future. But if we were to make a estimate, like this change of May becoming premier for life, right? I mean, he's basically the, their, uh, their head for life now. I mean, till he has the physical faculties and the mental faculties to hold that position. But... Like what, there was no resistance to him inside his party system, where if he says no, uh bus ab mai tumhara raja kind of a thing, and like there was no maneuverability to stop that from happening. Like uh, like for example, the American way, right? The Americans had this uh, thing which were uh, started again by one of their presidents that only two terms and I leave. It was never enshrined into law in that sense. It was a tradition started. And they've been following that now forever now or uh, over a period of time. It just becomes the thing. But he clearly doesn't care, Xi Jinping. But now let us go back because the, the essence of your piece was that Xi Jinping is no Mao Zedong. And you use a very specific word, which honestly, that struck to me. You called it Great Leap 2.0. Now, why did you call it Great Leap 2.0? What is so like why what made you use the word Great Leap again for this one? See, um when I when I was writing that essay, it, it struck me that uh the kind of unlimited power which Mao had accumulated in his uh his his uh, tenure in power, right now she has almost that kind of power in his hands, right? 
so if he wants to implement policies that are in the extreme like mao did great leap forward was a policy which was an extreme policy he wanted to achieve some extraordinary results in a very quick time there is no one who can stop g from doing that why do i say that because right now the 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 risk and reward structure in 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 chinese uh, elite politics is fashioned in such a way after this latest shake up uh since everyone who's right now inside the politburo the politburo standing committee and the central committee owe their allegiance to xi and it is and since loyalty is probably the the, the most important criterion in going into that power circle naturally these people will not be able to freely speak or freely open their mind remember these are not these are not um, these are not dummies uh, one one mistake which many people do is that they think that since she has handpicked his people that might mean that you know these these people don't really matter these are actually very qualified people some of them are technocrats uh, they have huge administrative experience and these are qualified people they are there but the problem is that since she holds absolute power and and it is very difficult for a person let's say i am the premier i am li qiang right i do not agree with the boss's policy but do i have the courage to go and tell him to his face because if i do so then he might take it as insubordination or worse he might take it that i am doing some sort of factionalism and i can be purged so in this case and since these are all career indiv- career oriented individuals who want to go up they would rather stay in she's good books and then speak truth to power now what that means is that extremely bad information is likely to filter through she what happens in a democracy why is democracy a better system than autocracy the simple thing is that democracy is extremely chaotic but the thing about democracy is that you get to hear a lot of unpleasant things even if you don't want to and sometimes even if you do not admit in front of the camera you sit in a meeting with your close confidence and you you know and you talk about these things in private and you decide that look this is working and this isn't but what happens if there is no honest feedback if you are in a risk and reward structure where nobody is going to cross you nobody will dare open your mouth then what happens is that bad news is likely to be filtered out and only the good news will filter in now when you are filtering out all the bad news in running a country then obviously you are filtering out a lot of important information so my problem with this system and what she is system has done right now is that i do not understand how he can operate in an environment where he can get only one kind of information then he is more likely to take you know how can a leader take in, uh, uh, how can a leader implement policy he will implement policy based on the information that he gets it is not you know it is not likely that she goes out late into the night disguised as kushal mehra or shrimoy talukdar and walks the nights of shanghai bazaar or beijing bazaar and sees how people see him you know that is not true he will rely on information if that information is not honest if that feedback is not good if the quality of the information is not right then he is likely to take more bad decisions and extreme policies this is why i said that there is a more likelihood of great leap 2.0 because just like mao he has put himself in a position where he has taken out the checks and balances and the person and, and he has made it more likely that he will take more bad decisions and good ones that is not a given that is not a given i'm i'm repeating this but there is more likelihood of him taking extreme policies in absence of this honest feedback structure talking about bad decisions let me tell you one thing that has baffled me completely about the chinese way of working and this zero covid obsession that the chinese mm-hmm. have 
and every time they have they just lock down cities they just shut things down like did you see images of the foxconn factory uh, recently yes. that that trickled down on twitter i mean i'm just baffled and and it's all because of the stupid lockdowns that they're doing like do they have a death wish or something like is how much do you think covid eventually has accelerated this great leap great leap 2.0 that you're talking about well i <clears throat> you you have to stop looking at it from the western lens uh imagine you are in charge of china you have told your audience you have told your uh, your people since the onset of this pandemic that your system is better than the western system that in the west in the democracies people die but in china people do not die you have sold them this kool-aid for a very long time now this has tied your hands to the extent that now if people start get you know falling dead because you know since you have not allowed covid to spread in a way what has happened in india and in many other countries covid has has lost its sting mostly because there has been uh, a sort of uh, it, it has been become so widespread among the populace that a natural immunization has kicked in and also the fact that a lot of people have been in india at least a lot of people have been uh, uh, you know given the the vaccine in there there are two issues with chinese policy right now the first is that china has spectacularly failed to vaccinate its citizens most of the elderly senior citizens in china they have not been vaccinated so they are at a great risk and the second thing is that by their extremely strict extreme covid zero policy the chinese people have not been exposed to the virus there is also a set of panic inside them so if you are a chinese if you are the chinese president you know that a significant amount and remember china is demographic demography china is a country of old people its walking age population is rapidly shrinking so many people in china have not been vaccinated you have told them that western democracies are bad because they cannot handle covid many people have died in china we have not allowed anyone to die right but then you know in you out of all people should know that if this if this covid is now allowed to spread they will be in a huge amount of trouble because a this disease will spread among people who are not vaccinated too because natural immunization is not set in because because of this very strict covid policy it might the virus might act in a way that you cannot understand you cannot predict so there might be a third or a fourth wave which will be even more severe than the first wave at least the risk is there so how do you how do you cope with that because remember the legitimacy of chinese communist party does not come through the vote bank does not come through the electoral system what happens in a democracy is that you know that these people have elected you so even if you do something bad you you will be voted out in the next cycle that is fine but then that legitimacy stems from your electoral win in china the legitimacy selects the stays on the fact that chinese people the, the social contract which the chinese communist party has with the chinese people is that look you give you you part with your liberty you part with your freedom and we will give you prosperity and political stability that's the kind of loosely held social contract that they have now if the chinese communist party is failing in its primary job of providing stability of of providing uh, you know or um, uh, uh, preventing a disease from spreading then in a in a paranoid regime and remember all autocratic regimes have paranoid regimes in a paranoid regime that is likely to make xi even more insecure so for all these reasons he cannot afford to take away the zero covid policy it is his hands are tied he has pushed himself into that corner i wrote a piece specifically on this uh, subject why she is persisting with that uh, zero covid policy in case you are interested you may take a look there sure now 
but it's just it makes no sense like peep don't the people see that the damn thing is a sham like it doesn't work and no i think what i, think, I have I never think... understood is why don't chinese people get angry no that is because no that is because they are not exposed to the kind of information that you are exposed to kushal remember that chinese internet is heavily censored chinese people see what only the regime wants them to see right and in the minds of chinese people and and understand this the chinese people are not they they are not on the impression that this is an autocratic regime which is out to oppress us they genuinely believe and in and a large majority of the chinese people genuinely believe that the chinese communist party is doing a good job right that is the reason why they are there and because they are not they are not exposed to the information that you and i are exposed to because they get edited information because the entire narrative is very strictly controlled by the chinese communist party the basically the brainwashing that has happened is that the covid is a very dangerous disease if it not be had if it's not been for the zero covid policy then our society will become just like the democratic chaotic societies of the west where people die this is the thing which even chinese people themselves accept and they to a large extent and remember this revolt against the zero covid policy only started when food became scarce when when policies became extreme but before that the chinese people were quite readily ready to adapt to the circumstances of the zero covid getting getting uh, you know um, tested every day you tell me how many even at the height of covid in india how many people if i if if a if a local administrator or a municipality body had decided that in this area in this zone every people will get tested every week how do you think that thing will be accepted there will be revolt most of the people oh. won't even go for testing right इन्फॉर्मेशन now what happens if that information itself is constricted to serve a very specific narrative at the end of the day you will believe what you are being led to believe yeah it's just you know it's insane uh it's insane uh that people are like this i mean seriously but now okay now let so how is he different then because the the me the essence of your essay and it's i have to say i love reading your essays on first post uh, is that you know there's a very important factor in the essay that you touch upon you talk about the mass appeal of mao zedong and you contrast it with xi jinping now let's focus on that like uh, your whole thing was like uh, do not assume xi jinping is mao zedong like what it but what uh, maybe i'm not able to understand it from the essay and this is what i want to focus on before i start taking some audience questions also because i know we have to wrap it up at 8 o'clock now like do you try to say the great leap 2.0 is going to be worse than the 1.0 and xi jinping is going to mess it up even more than mao zedong like i'm not able to get that essence from your essay okay so my uh, the the, the uh, i think what in 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 the very important way that she differs from mao is that obviously the external environment is different uh, mao operated um, at a time when the cold war was still going on and uh, the us was not obsessed with china 
the US was obsessed with the, the Soviet Russia at that point of time. Uh, she is operating in an environment where US has identified China as its most uh, important uh, rival, uh, the, who not only has the, has the intention of changing the US-led international order, but also the means of doing so. So she is in a, in a radically different zone that way. That they, so the external environment, the context, external context is different. Secondly, I was trying to um, contrast their personalities. Mao was a very dynamic individual. And um, unlike Xi, unlike Xi, uh, you know, scholars, I'm not a scholar of Mao Zedong, but uh, from what, what, what little that I know is that Mao uh, uh, loved to sort of operate in a state of chaos. And he, it, there would be a lot of, in, in, even in, in those periods when Mao enjoyed extreme extreme power with no uh, limits on his power even in those days uh, there will be rival cliques and rival factions who try to undermine mao's authority and mao went after them with with as much gusto as he could muster but i think she as an individual is um uh, first of all i i consider him to be a more boring person in the sense that he's he's not at all flashy like mao he's not given to uh, writing couplets or, or or writing poetries or stuff like that, and he is a very I I would say that Ma, uh, he, she is a very methodical individual who goes into every meeting with a lot of preparedness. He rules through small leading groups. Now, what are these small leading groups? Uh, so, in in the Chinese elite politics, you uh, let's say you have, there is a there is an issue which needs your attention. So, what? She, Mao would have done is that he would appoint an individual to take care of that issue. What she does is that he creates a small group of people where he sits on top and then they discuss that issue and they meticulously go through it. He takes a more bureaucratic approach in every uh, problem that he faces. But the but the, while there is a difference between Mao and Xi's approach towards solving problems, their personalities are obviously different. In one thing, I think both of them are, are equal. And that is their quest for unlimited power. Here, I, I was in this essay, I was trying to show that since many people are comparing Xi Jinping's with Mao Zedong after the latest party congress, that was my initial starting point was this, that don't make the mistake that Xi Jinping is the new Mao. He is not the new Mao. Just because he seeks unlimited power, that does not make him the new Mao. Because Mao's personality, Mao's way of operating and the external environment was totally different from what she is. His personality is different. His external environment is different. His way of approaching a problem is different. And the way he goes about eliminating his rivals is also different. In Mao's case, he would purge the rivals, send them somewhere else or execute them. In Xi's case, and, and this is a very interesting aspect. I don't know whether you'll have the time. Uh, then I would like to touch upon this aspect. You know, many people say, that she used the anti-corruption platform as one of the political tools to remove all his rivals in his quest for power. It is partly true. <clears throat> you have to understand the, the, the context in which she came to power. Uh, Hu Jintao's last, uh, last uh, term, which was uh, the decade ended in 2012, from 2007 to 2012, China had an open market policy. And while that made China very prosperous, Hu Jintao's cabinet, Hu Jintao's uh, Politburo Standing Committee had, was also driven with a lot of factionalism 
and in china at that point of time and you will understand this kushal <clears throat> in a in a democratic capitalist market economy system a lot of people can get very rich very quickly and and if you look at that system un, at that point of time china's communist system was not really in play in the years that jiang zemin and hu jinta was in power china was open to the world it invited investors from all over and a lot of people in china became very rich very quickly which is why china posted double digit growth for nearly two decades when these two guys were in power with the opening of the economy by deng xiaoping followed by jiang zemin and hu jinta now the flip side of this is that there were a lot of issues inside the communist party the communist party's grip on the society was loosening and many many communist party members became totally corrupted corruption in an unimaginable level because of the opening of the economy opening up of the economy and because hu jintao was not a mao zedong or a xi jinping his grip on the party was not that not that strong and he was also in bed with a lot of rival factions so he was constantly busy mitigating those fires a lot of the focus went away from the party's grip on the chinese chinese society and mm-hmm. and and now you have to understand that chinese communist party is absolutely obsessed obsessed with capital o b s e s s e d obsessed with the fall of ussr they believe that if chinese communist party is not steered in the right direction then another inevitable fall of the chinese communist party just like the form of ussr is inevitable which is why they have studied the fall of ussr obsessively this is something which they have digested every party member in chinese communist party who matter they have digested this entire fall of ussr and how it can be avoided in the chinese context right that fear kushal became very real in the 2012 2010 2011 2012 12 time when xi jinping was inducted into the party one of the reasons why she was brought in because it was thought that he was a clean individual who has no corrupt background of corruption and he can tighten the screws of the party and rid the party of corruption this was one of the man- and obviously you have to understand that even though right now xi jinping is throwing hu jintao out of the great hall of china during a party congress but he couldn't have become a president of china had hu jintao's approval not been there in 2012 right so because that is how the party is is built in 2012 when hu jintao was a president he obviously agreed to make uh, you know uh, him the successor um, for the chinese general secretary's post and that is how she came in so she came in at a time of great crisis for the chinese communist party when the entire party was going through convulsions china was becoming very rich but a lot of corruption was creeping in there was a there was an atmosphere of laissez faire inside the party which had never been there before and they were genuinely worried in comes xi jinping and and this is a man who's and, and i i i give xi jinping this he simultaneously read the party of corruption but at the same time while reading the party of corruption he also used corruption as a tool to read his read the party of his rivals so that his power becomes much more entrenched so this is a dual use if you ask me if the if the people who were purged by xi jinping were they absolutely not corrupt that xi jinping only removed them because he wanted to remove them as rivals the answer is a little bit more complicated they obviously has had a lot of corruption in their background but then the they the way that they were eliminated and that and the extent to which that that campaign was carried out was obviously because of political reason so it's it's a bit of both xi jinping used both these things to come to the point that he has right now 
so it's it's very uh, interesting you also mentioned the age uh, age bit yeah so yeah. as of now i think china uh it has one of the fastest growing populations in the world right yeah 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 and uh, uh like i think 267 million approximately are uh, 60 and above that is like almost 19% of their population they also seemed uh, i i was hearing and reading that they seem to be faking their population numbers as actually are far more aging than they actually want to let uh, let out because the if they do i mean sh- shit will literally hit the roof for them even the um, chinese academy of social sciences wa- was quoted saying if this trend continues it will bring very unfavorable socio economic consequences for them so so kushal i am not uh, i don't know whether you have read a report in south china morning post a newspaper which is published from hong kong uh, it used to be um, uh, an anti establishment newspaper at one point of time when hong kong had uh, had come out from british rule and and was yet to be the kind of place it is right now uh, but right now SCMP, as I call it, SCMP is not an anti-establishment newspaper anymore. It is it toes the party line. However, an interesting bit of news um, caught my attention. I think about a couple of weeks back. So, newlywed couples in Beijing they are getting a phone call from the Chinese Communist Party officials, asking them that since they have got married for a year or so, why aren't they having children? So this is happening. Yeah, and and I'm telling you because I have spoken to a few people. I try to follow some scholars on China. I get it; the West is always going to over-exaggerate. But one place where this Chinese population fall is going to affect the Americans disproportionately is America had a 15 billion dollar business model thanks to Chinese students coming to America every year to study in American universities. Mm-hmm. Chinese students were number one in American universities when it came to education opportunities. And I don't know how many people know, but in fact, America is no longer the number one educational destination of the world. Too Canada has taken over as the number one. educational destination of the world now for the last 2 years or 3 years canada is number 1 america is not even number 2 now which is which is the americans have their shit to solve and one of the major reasons for that is the absolutely abysmal american immigration system it's it's abysmal and the canadian immigration system since harper times right and and as much as i find justinder to be funny i mean i call him justinder now but uh, justin trudeau has continued the tradition of a very robust immigration system in canada canada plans in the next 3 to 4 3 years i think to get 1.45 million people as immigrants in canada even more uh, and they have clear defined criteria but the thing is canada was smart they also saw the chinese problem they took all indians so aaj ke date mein indians bhar bhar ke ja rahe hain so the one thing about this entire chinese not going outside it's going to screw the american university system up it's very they, interesting kushal uh, what happened was that uh, during jiang jiaoping's time the chinese communist party decided to implement the one child policy and um, the, you know uh, i i don't think that it is publicized much but uh, there are some 
there are a generation in China who are I'm 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 forgetting the exact phrase, but I think they are called the black people. These are this is the generation which which was born during the one-child policy, and these people, uh, let's say the second child in a in a, in a in in a home, was never acknowledged. They were not given any schooling. They were basically hidden from society, because the Chinese Communist Party was so strict that it would penalize you if it comes to know that you have more than two kids, more than one kid. Now China is now reaping that poison fruit. Now, what started in the 1980s as one-child policy, that the that poison fruit is now being reaped by the Chinese now, because obviously due to that one-child policy, the Chinese working population has dramatically shrunk. and because the chinese working population has shrunk and the and the senior category citizens have have gone up in ranks one of the also one of the biggest reasons as i said just now the why zero covid is 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 so important for chinese uh, communist party because the senior citizens mostly are unvaccinated and they would have a high mortality rate if if covid is allowed to spread and remember they don't have natural immunity uh, which countries like india do <clears throat> so they don't have that because they have not allowed the covid to spread this is also another reason Uh, so uh, right now the working age population of china is so bad that now the chinese communist party is incentivizing the chinese couples to get more kids how are they incentivizing the pushback coming from the chinese couples is that look rearing one child is is costly enough two is out of the question because in china if you take all the problems that india has regarding uh, you know uh, 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 bringing up a child uh, in terms of uh, education and also the real estate and stuff multiply that by 10 and you will get china it is even more expensive there so yeah. uh, they will or naturally the the couples do not want uh, most of the couples don't want a kid and even if they do they don't want more than one so right now the communist party is incentivizing them and i was astonished to hear that they are also calling up uh, couples who have got newly married and keeping a track of their marriage date and asking them ek saal ho gaya why aren't you still having a kid This is incredible. Can you imagine something like this? This, <laughs> this sounds like our house's dadaji. And they yeah, say, yeah. no. If you if you want, then we can we can we can go we can we can uh, we can sit down for a discussion about the benefits of having a child. What we can offer you in terms of uh, you know inducements and stuff. But you have to get into the family way as soon as possible. So this is how desperate they are. Yeah, and not only that, people don't realize is China. is the sasta badhiya tikau destination for the world when they import their products but china for chinese is very mehanga it's very expensive it, it's not if you are a chinese living in china it's not like it's a sasta desh to stay no 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 very true very true very true yeah it is so uh, in fact living living in the urban spaces in china in one of the let's say place like shanghai it's forbiddingly expensive forbiddingly expensive and and uh, and the competition in china is so high uh, i'm sure you must have heard about the lying flat trend among the young chinese people which has gained currency in the last two years and once again the chinese communist party is very worried about that many chinese youth because of the very high cutthroat competition of getting a job and getting educated and stuff like that and the and remember uh, clearing a test in china and getting into one of the prestigious universities is probably more difficult than joining a uh, joining a harvard or stanford in the us the the mm. competition is even fiercer and the standards are even higher so many of these individuals they simply opt out of this competition they go into the hills they lie flat on their backs and they stare at the sky and say i'm boss i'm out so this lying flat culture which is rapidly growing in chinese uh, society uh, in the, among the very young people that is also you know uh, 
uh, worrying the Chinese people a lot, Chinese Communist Party a lot. But I think it is yeah. it is one of the things which uh, which is unavoidable because um, in in China everyone wants to be. Uh, it's like it's see, it's, China has a very big middle class, right? The middle class mm. in China is one of the reasons why American companies and and are all the Western companies make a beeline for China. They all want a share of that pie. So the middle class, while that is big, it also means a lot of competition for a very limited number of seats. So that is exactly what is happening. Exactly, exactly. All right, let's take a few viewer questions and then we'll wrap it up. So, the first question is: What made Jiang Xiaoping change the CCP policy from going out of Soviet ambit and open up the Chinese economy? And do you see China as a future superpower? I think they are a present superpower, if you ask me. Yeah, they are. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll take the second one first. I think China is is obviously a, a great power, but whether it is a rival of America in terms of a superpower, I don't think so i think it will it will take some time and i don't think that it is a given that china will eventually overcome the us i think uh, there was there is a there is a discourse which says so and china certainly would like to believe it but i think uh, uh, it, it is not a given that us will china will be able to overcome the us in terms of economy and 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 in terms of uh, national composite power by having a, a, a even more powerful military it is not within china, outside china's reach but i don't think that it is going to be happening very soon and about uh, the deng xiaoping question i think uh, it was very very clear to deng xiaoping and he was a pragmatist deng xiaoping it was very clear to him that unless he opens up the chinese economy the chinese communist party will simply go out of power because you cannot remain in power unless you give prosperity to people because you 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 are not getting elected through an election right so how how do you remain your how do you maintain your hold on to the power you can only maintain your hold on to the power in an authoritarian system if you give people what they are happy with which is in this case money so prosperity was the coinage by which they bought legitimacy and that prosperity wouldn't have been possible had it not been for opening up the chinese economy fair enough fair enough all right um someone has asked what are the probabilities uh, of a china invasion of taiwan and then a war again taiwan being propped up by the west as the west is propping ukraine up what do you think uh, next year kushal i can spend one entire episode on this so let's not I'd rather try to. So, एक काम करते हैं next next episode करते हैं next episode का topic मिल गया इसके ऊपर. But in a in a in a very short way, I would actually go counterintuitive. I think, and I would um I would I would probably write on this. I think that Xi Jinping is not going to invade Taiwan anytime soon. <laughs> Because Xi Jinping uh, will have done a cost benefit analysis. and the cost benefit analysis post ukraine would have told him that raiding taiwan right now is not going to be uh, a very good strategy uh, that is uh, there are two aspects to it one is the military aspect and the other one is the legitimacy of the chinese communist party in taiwan among the taiwanese people i'll come to that bit a little later first let's talk about the military aspect right now china has enough military power to overpower taiwan and it has also enough bases around taiwan to set up a blockade so that the american army or the american military or the 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 allied network cannot interfere it has enough power but the problem with that such a system is that xi jinping is not vladimir putin you have mm-hmm. seen what vladimir putin has done in in russia vladimir putin's war against ukraine 
has actually made him a lot weaker than he was before the war started. Xi Jinping is not going to do that. He's he's much more of a pragmatist and he's not reckless at all. He if he takes a if if he if he invades Taiwan, he will only invade Taiwan when he'll be sure that it will be a quick victory, an easy victory, and nobody can do anything. And not just that, the the rest of the the Chinese ecos the the Chinese uh, uh, place in the international order that will not be majorly harmed. For instance, right now Russia is battling a host of sanctions. China will know that if it invades Taiwan, even if it garners an easy victory. A lot of Western sanctions will come in its way. How does it mitigate those? I think Xi Jinping is the kind of personality, and here we go back to uh, what we are discussing about his difference with Mao Zedong. I think Xi Jinping is a very methodical, a thorough individual. He's he's the kind of topper who would probably uh, finish the entire syllabus thrice over and read all the necessary books on that subject before he appears for the exam. So he will have gone through all these all these uh, uh, scenarios and that would have told him that that is a bad idea invading taiwan right now the second thing which not gets easily discussed not gets uh, not doesn't get discussed so often in the media is that let's say you invade taiwan what next china already has a hong kong problem where it knows that it's spending a lot of time power and money in order to keep hong kongers who basically are freedom loving people to keep them at bay you know you want it is one thing ruling over the mainland China, another thing keeping arrestive Hong Kong at bay by the cost of very, very extreme uh, laws and 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 by by the dint of since since violence. I don't think that he wants to he wants to make Taiwan another Hong Kong. Uh, many Xi Jinping has said this many times that his problem does not lie with Taiwanese people, but his problem lies with the Taiwanese political party, which is opposed to uh, Xi Jinping. Uh, Chinese Communist Party. So what I think what he's trying to do is that he's trying to tell the people in Taiwan that, look, I'm not going to invade you, but if you can vote these people out who are right now in power and get a party in power which is more amicable in its relationship with the Kuomintang Party, which is more amicable in its relationship with the Chinese Communist Party, then you will be in a much better position that you are in right now. I think he's giving signals to the to the Taiwanese people I think someone who plans to invade Taiwan will not do that. So it is my analysis and it's my thinking that I think Xi Jinping does not plan to invade Taiwan anytime soon. Even if it does so, it will be only under a very specific set of circumstances and he will have done a thorough cost-benefit analysis. I think he will probably try to uh, uh, unify Taiwan peacefully. I think, I think that is he says that and, and I, we have no reason to disbelieve him. I really think that she. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party wants to unify Taiwan peacefully rather than taking it militarily. But what, what do you think about the American move of setting up a semiconductor manufacturing unit now in America, which is going to be operational next year? This is going to have serious repercussions on American consumption of the chips from Taiwan and certain parts. And yeah, that, that's going to create you know, problems that, for China. That, and China could retaliate, right? That is... The, the the semiconductor arena is one where I think the U.S. and China war is going to be uh, the, it will probably be the trigger if there is a conflict because what the Biden administration has done is that it is pretty much it is pretty much closed all avenues for China to become a military exactly. superpower by way of semiconductor exactly. chips right yes. so that that could provide a trigger for China to move and take Taiwan because then it gets access to the Taiwan is, uh, uh, you know, Taiwan is a, is, is a world leader in semiconductor chips. But do not forget that in case 
China invades Taiwan because it wants to take control of the semiconductor founding factories, then obviously there will be a retaliation. And semiconductor is such an intricate business, Kushal, that it is not no country on earth can make a semiconductor by itself. It is a very intricate value chain spread all around the world with, with some countries possessing very little, very well, possessing specific specialities in one segment of that entire value chain. So, for instance, for argument's sake, I say that China takes over Taiwan and takes control of the semiconductor factory there because the U.S. has closed all avenues of it, of it getting semiconductor developed its own shores. But in that case, the U.S. possesses enough power in its hand to to tamper with that value chain and the supply chain because many countries who have uh, who who value add and who give specific uh, you know equipment in that value chain are us allies they will stop doing that to the taiwanese communist uh, taiwanese semiconductor factory in that uh, scenario so that really doesn't help china that really doesn't help china it 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 it, it really does not make them uh, you know maybe it will get a head start for a couple of years but eventually they will fall back because the value chain will then get disrupted Hmm. Now, uh, just one last question and then we'll wrap it up. Just a quick answer. Look, Indians in India are very much aware of the Chinese threat and we have talked about it. But how do we leverage our diaspora and make them understand and through them also reach out to other counterparts in the rest of the world? Do you think there's a hope in talking about the Chinese threat there through the diaspora? Do Do you think they realize the Chinese threat? I, I'm not sure I understand. You mean the diaspora who stay in the U.S. or, uh, or uh, just in the anglicized world and the anglicized world? So your contention is that they do not understand the Chinese threat. I don't know. I, I, in my experience, I don't think they understand the gravity of the Chinese threat to the world. Uh, so and is there a maybe... specific reason? Is is there a specific context in which you are asking this? Because I need to understand this before I can. Uh, No, I mean, uh, I think a viewer has asked this question and I, it was asked to me. I mean, I personally did not see any real understanding of the Chinese threat in the diaspora because see, at the end of the day, for every diaspora, for every nation outside of their area, their ethnic people do the lobbying. And I don't know how much when it comes to For instance, let's say if I talk about an Indian diaspora in the US, I think, uh, uh, their concern about uh, the, the the threat that China poses to them will be specific to that country, right? Not the country of their of their birth or or the country of their descent. I think they, their context will be very specific in in the sense that how they are getting affected by the Chinese threat. So I am not sure I quite understand how that will help in them understanding the Chinese threat so that it benefits India. Uh, if you ask me how Indians can better understand the Chinese threat, I think there is a there is a there is a paucity there. I think we need more more focus on China. I think we need more think tanks specifically dedicated to China, learning of the Chinese language, understanding how the political system works there. Because only by understanding China more, we will be able to understand the threat that they pose to our system better. And do not uh, and and believe me, they are the biggest threat for India in more ways than one. Mm-hmm. All right. Cool. So, Srimoy, uh, I know we have to wrap up now because it's yep. 8 p.m. and you have to leave. But yep. uh, before we leave, any last words uh, before we wrap up? So, I, I think that that uh, while talking to you, I think that, that Taiwan, uh, invasion of Taiwan, whether Xi Jinping will do that, I think that's an important, uh, that's a very interesting piece. And I, I think I'll, uh, you know, I, I take some cue from this and I'll maybe I'll write on this uh, 
next time and then we can maybe come back and discuss that uh, yes, that's something which yeah, really I'll get you back in December Liko or Firaja all right thanks, all right uh, yeah. uh, thanks for coming Srimoy as always pleasure talking to you pleasure to pleasure to thank you thank you Kusha all right, guys, we'll wrap today's discussion up. Uh, as, uh, as always, in the description of the podcast, you will see Srimoy's Twitter handle and a link to the essay that uh, basically inspired today's discussion, not just this essay. You can read other essays written by Srimoy too. And as far as I'm concerned, you can support me by subscribing to the Charvak Podcast YouTube channel, like the video, leave your comments, or become a sub member on YouTube or a subscribe paid member on Patreon or buying the merch or sending your donations to UPI. I will see you guys next time. Until then, Namaste, take care, bye-bye.